I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy myself. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. All right, and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club. My name is Jeff, and with me is the sun-bronzed Sumerian Hoy. Hello. Uh, whatever the opposite of that is, actually, like a frozen Yeti, probably. <laughs> <laughs> and with us today is our special guest, John from the Chromcast. <laughs> hey, everybody. Uh, it's really nice to be here. I'm excited to be with a Yeti that's got a nice suntan. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So, John, thanks for being on the show. Uh, can you give us a little bit of background about your history with gaming? Oh, man. I'm going to be probably one of the oddities that you interview for the show because I definitely have a very limited history with gaming. Whatever you have heard on Bourbons and, Bourbon and Barbarians through the Chromecast is my history with gaming. So how many ever episodes of that there are, that is it. Uh, I had never played Dungeons & Dragons before, and Josh and Luke, my co-hosts on the Chromecast, they tried to rectify that. For several years while I lived in Kentucky with them and went to grad school and it never happened until Luke came up with the format for the show and I agreed and it's been a big big experiment big experience for me <laughs> that's awesome so were you were you interested in in heroic fiction or sword and sorcery fiction prior to that though or was that something that you came to through, through the podcast it, process it's definitely through the podcast actually uh when i was growing up my i guess my nerdiness was more focused in the comic book world i was a big spider-man kind of guy and cartoons and all that i did not read a lot of mm -hmm. fantasy uh i knew of conan and i knew of robert e howard and some of his characters but it wasn't it wasn't something that i invested a lot of time in I wouldn't say I came from like a fundamentalist home or anything, uh, but there was definitely in my community, my hometown, some pushback against things like Dungeons and Dragons and getting Satan's grasp on your soul if you were to play such a game. <laughs> Did that spark any curiosity in you at the time then? Or, or you were just like... A little yeah. bit, yeah. I mean, I wanted to know more about that kind of... Uh, those kinds of cultures, I guess, and, and learn more about that. But I also di I didn't find anybody that I went to school with when I was in high school or even at Purdue when I went to college where I didn't meet anybody that played Dungeons and Dragons. I didn't meet anybody that was a part of that, that culture. I knew some folks that did at Purdue, they did what's the vampire one? Oh, vampire, the masquerade. Vampire, the masquerade. Yes, I remember that being a big deal on campus, but I never, I never joined in cause I right. thought I would have to buy a vampire costume and right, I don't right, think they make them in my size. <laughs> or at least a trench coat. Yeah, at least a trench coat. <laughs> <laughs> so it was something I was always curious about, and it was something that I I thought would be cool. I was never against it, I guess, but right, it right. took Luke kind of uh, getting me into it because Luke is a very right. persuasive dungeon master, if you haven't listened to the show. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so therefore, you went to graduate school and signed away your everlasting soul. That's right. All right. So now, John, when were you introduced to the concept of the Appendix N? That was when we started the Chromecast, because I remember Luke and Josh talking a lot about the Appendix N and how this this fiction that we were diving into with Robert E. Howard and some of his contemporaries and some of their descendants, I guess, literarily, 
they are all listed out in that appendix in and have a big impact on the way Dungeons and Dragons is kind of put together. And how much of the appendix in had you read prior to discovering what it was? And how much have you read since then? I would say I hadn't read any of the appendix in before starting Dungeons and Dragons or starting the show. Not even uh, Lord the of the Rings? I hadn't even read Lord of the Rings. No. Wow. <laughs> okay. Yeah. No, I, I was definitely a newbie when I came to all of this. And I would say now that I'm on the Chromecast, I mean, we've done all the Fritz Leiber, Fawford stuff. And uh, you've read some robbery. Lovecraft. We've had some Lovecraft. We've had, uh, did we have Lord Dunsany during one Chromtober? I'm trying to, we've, we've covered some of these other folks right. in here that I see, but uh, Lynn Carter, we read Thongor of Liberia. Right. <laughs> <laughs> nice. How, how, is it, how is it discovering some of this stuff as an adult? I mean, some of this obviously is, is best discovered sort of like in adolescence or, or you know, in you know, early adulthood. Sure. Uh, but, but how is it discovering some of this stuff later on? In this- I enjoy, I guess we talk about it on the show sometimes, the archaeological aspect of it, like looking at all of these foundational pieces of literature that have informed so many things that I had enjoyed prior to this, like seeing where all of these different archetypes come from and seeing some of these forebears in the, in the genre kind of coming up with it. It's fun to see that. And it's fun, I think, to have an adult perspective to be able to understand that a little bit better. But I do, I do agree with what you're saying that there are some things where it would maybe have connected better with me if I had been a younger man reading the story. (laughs) I feel like that's especially true with Elric. Like I'm 38 and I'm reading Elric now for the first time and I'm loving it. But I also know that if I had read it for the first time when I was like 14 or 15, it would have been my world. (laughs) Yeah, I could totally see that. (laughs) And some of that stuff, like just, I don't think translates well to adulthood. Like I read, I read the catcher in the rye for the first time when I was like 25 and I'm like, I I don't get it. (laughs) My wife and I were just talking about this last night. She asked me about some books that I thought were foundational in my life. And I said, I remember being 14 or 15 and thinking that the catcher in the rye was the dopest thing that ever happened. <laughs> but I, and if you tried to read it now, I think I would be like, man, Holden Caulfield is a jerk. Right, right. I just would hate his guts. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, uh, I missed the boat on Ayn Rand, probably a good thing. So there you go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let that one right. sail. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to get some angry Randian letters. That was true. <laughs> Never let it said that we do not have trolls on Penny's <laughs> Angry. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's go ahead and chat about which edition of Conan the Wanderer we are reading today. Uh, Hoy, let's start with you. I am reading the Lancer 1970 printing, which is, I guess, the second Lancer printing. So it's got the trade dress, the orange band on top, indicating that it's the fourth in the chronological progression. It's got the John Duilo cover, with, uh, which is not as bad as the one with him and the ape that, that we talked about like a couple episodes back, but it's still not great. Um, which is sad because John Duilo's artwork, again, I said, I looked up some of his Western artwork and it's great. Um, but he, just, he was just phoning it in with Conan. So there you go. Yeah. I've similarly got one of those as well. I've got a 1977 ACE paperback with the John Duilo cover and yeah, it's, it's not good. It's not as bad as the ludicrous one where he's fighting the ape, right. uh, which is, I believe the freebooter, right? I Conan so. the freebooter yeah. book three. Um, this one's a little better, but still like he's Conan's kind of misshapen yeah. Yeah. in this one as well. Um, and I'm not quite sure how these arrows are flying in the directions yep. that they're flying. Yep. And he has no uh, neck. 
<laughs> yeah, because the arrows appear to be flying upward and then at an angle, yeah. like they're kind of turning, curving in the air, yeah. which doesn't really make a lot of sense. Uh, as though they're like heat sinking arrows. Right, right. Uh, <laughs> which version are you reading, John? I have the one with the Lee, uh, or, or I'm sorry, Boris Vallejo uh, cover, the Ace edition. And oh, nice. uh, I see that here on the wiki too, as well, the Conan fandom wiki. And uh, I've got the coming of Conan the Sumerian, the conquering sword of Conan. And I even popped out some of the mm-hmm. Savage Sword collections just to see the adaptations uh, that they had done of these stories. So I've got volume three, which has the flame knife and black tears in it. And you can see it's got some sort of mm-hmm. Nordic monstrosity on the cover about to clobber Conan with a stalactite. <laughs> it looks like. I've got the uh, El Borak trade too, because one of the stories was actually a rewritten El Borak story. We'll get to yeah, that, obviously, totally. when we get, get into there. So Okay, very yeah. cool. Yeah, and definitely the way to read Conan properly is definitely those books that you have in your hand, John. It is not these books that we're, <laughs> we've got in ours. <laughs> that's an interesting that's an interesting piece of culture, I think, in the Conan fandom is there's a lot of people who I think they would probably push back against you and I and, and us on that because they think of those books as the foundational piece of their fandom, those Lancers and those Aces, because that's what they read when they were 13. So to me, this Del Rey is the thing because it's it's Howard original stuff and it's a nice collection. But for some people, those aces and those Lancers, that's it. That's what they want. Right, right. I think it's tied up large, largely partly into the cover artwork, you know, the, the iconic Frazetta yes. covers and stuff like that. Um, but And then there's that sort of very um, puritan. Well, I don't want to say that. That's, that's a purist, purist. Uh, Howard people who are just like, no, no, it's elsewhere to campus, the Antichrist. And so we've had this oh, discussion. Are we going to talk about that? Because <laughs> I, I can do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we can do that. <laughs> okay. Absolutely. We will in a yeah. moment. We're going to shelve this conversation because we could really kind of go off here. Yeah. So let's quickly shelve this, do our high Gaxian word of the day, and then we'll get right back into our discussion about this. There you go. So our high Gaxian word of today is escarpment. Escarpment. And I found escarpment on page 13, which is the very first page of the Black, of Black Tears. And it says, here some primeval conflict of natural forces had riven a cleft through the escarpment. And an escarpment is a long, steep slope, especially one at the edge of a plateau or separating areas of land at different angles. So our word for today is escarpment, which is a word that I don't believe I have ever used just uh, in casual conversation. <laughs> no, that doesn't seem like it would come up very often, yeah. unless you were hiking or something. Right. Exactly. Just past the next escarpment. There you go. <laughs> Hang a left. Hang a left at the escarpment. <laughs> so speaking of Elsprague de Camp and Link Carter potentially being the Antichrists, uh, John, what did you think of reading this collection, Conan the Wanderer? Well, Conan the Wanderer is is I like the title. I'll say that first and foremost. Uh, I like. <laughs> Is that like when somebody's like, how was the play? I liked the lighting. <laughs> <laughs> Other than that, how was the play, Mrs. Lincoln? Yeah, like, <laughs> uh, it's, it's a tough one, I guess, because I would say we on the Chromecast, I don't want to speak necessarily for Josh and Luke, but we probably have some feelings about El Sprague that are trickled down from Mark Finn and Rusty Burke and some of those other folks that are par- a big part of the Conan fandom and the Conan scholarship. Right. And, Right. Elsprague, he he was a cool he was a cool guy. Uh, from what I've been told, he was a gentleman. He was very scholarly. He carried himself in a very erudite 
manner when he walked past escarpments uh, <laughs> and he dressed very natalie and he was just like a cool guy i i think that i had read before that somebody wrote a story where they turned him into gandalf basically it was like a <laughs> fictional story where he he played the part of gandalf but his work with some of the howard i guess biography stuff and then his work with conan in particular it's a big subject of debate i would say just like with what holy was saying the purists have some problems with Lynn Carter and with Elsprague doing what they did. And there are others who I think rightfully point out that we probably wouldn't be talking about Conan stuff today if it wasn't for those two guys. So I would say that's, that's the big diatribe. That's the big discourse that happens with those two guys. Yeah. Within the community. Sure. Uh, and we've been talking about that even kind of loosely with uh, Lynn Carter in the last episode we did with um, uh, Howard and um, and we're, we're we're feeling a little bit more liberal towards Lynn Carter, at least in his own work. But still, when they're coming into, you know, working on or reworking uh, Howard's stuff, it's it's kind of problematic. It's problematic. And then I would say that what really kind of pushed me over the edge on this one was the Conan the Wanderer includes a couple of stories that I would not put very high on my even original Robert E. Howard listing yeah. uh shadows in zambula sure. is is a hard read as a modern yeah, person <laughs> i mean let's just say it, it's it's racist as all yeah. get out right that's just there's no other yeah, question it, about is it. Bad. Um... it is not good <laughs> not good it's it's hard to read it's very racist you you don't want to read right, stuff right. like that in fact let's just list the stories here so we have uh black tears which is an elspragg to camp and lynn carter original we have uh, Shadows in Zambula, which was also known as Maneaters, uh, Maneaters of Zambula. It's an initial publication. And we have uh, The Devil in Iron. And then we have The Flame Knife, which is an El Borak story, which is not at all fantastical, that Elspragg de Camp rewrote. Uh, the El Borak story, I believe, is called The Three-Bladed Doom. And so that's what we're looking at today. Perfect. Now, have either of you read the El Borak story? I that it's based I on? I just started. I'm about a third of the way through. And even the part <laughs> I've read is so much better than the flame knife. <laughs> and it's really easy to see the El Borak stuff. Just having done all these El Borak stories this season, this is not one that we included in our Road East on this season because it was a posthumous publication, if I remember correctly. We only did the ones that came out during Howard's lifetime, the El Borak stories. Well, so John, what did you think of these stories? There, it's We're in the part of Conan's life where he's a, a thief and a reaver, right? He is a desert nomad chieftain at this point. He is out stealing things from caravans. And so it's a unique period in his life. If you go by the El Sprague chronology, this is coming after, say, we are after a witch shall be born. So we've gone past the crucifixion that is very famous in Conan fiction. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. now we're, we're just out in the desert having yeah. a good time. Conan's drinking wine, stealing gold stealing ladies i guess and uh and we're also just past his era as kind of a pirate king right. yeah. yeah yeah so he's having a good time i think that th- that's a fun part but then once you get past that uh there's some weirdness just like we were talking about uh black tears is not super racist i, I guess <laughs> uh that will be one we talk about more with shadow zambula with in zambula but i liked some of the supernatural elements of this story, uh, the the Gorgon, the Medusa, that's mm-hmm. an interesting little bit. I think. Yes. Yeah, it was genuinely scary. They don't always Medusas aren't always yeah. scary. You know, this oh, it just turns you into stone. This one definitely had this sort of that weird where it sort of refills from its mummy like form as it draws life force away from the people that it's slowly petrifying. It's not instantaneous. You know that. 
Yeah. That's the part that got me was like thinking about, oh, my midsection is rock, but my neck <laughs> up is still human and I get to scream all the time right. for the Medusa. <laughs> How about you? What were your thoughts on it? I I mean, definitely Shadows and Zambula is a mixed bag for me because I actually thought of the four stories, I enjoyed the story of Shadows and Zambula the most of the four. Um, but certainly the issues of reading it from a modern perspective was very difficult. You know, he keeps referring to all of the black characters as the blacks uh, throughout, which is like, it's like when you hear like your grandma talking about like the gays right. or something. <laughs> like, uh, But also, I mean, of course, the blacks are cannibals. He's referring to them as being swamp bred, talks about their slouching gait right. and their brutish lust. And like, it's just, it's very clear. Robert E. Howard's own perceptions of black people play heavily into how these characters are portrayed in this story. And, and it's gross and it's hard to read and it's unpleasant. Um, And then also the flip side of that is the way he talks about white people is also very uncomfortable because there's um, in three of the four stories, we have maidens and he talks about, and he doesn't say it directly, but in a way of talking about how precious these maidens are and why he needs to protect them, he often brings up the fact that they are a member of the white race. And he will literally say, she is a member of the white race. And one of the three, he even said, she is a pure a pure blood member of the white race because she has blonde hair and blue right. eyes. And another one of the maidens was like, she's a member of the white race, but she had, uh, she, but she was a brunette. So she was of mixed blood and mixed ancestry. And he's so obsessed with like, you know, using the fact that these women are from the white race as a way of like putting them on a pedestal and giving them value. It is gross. It's, it's one of those hard things to read when you go through almost any Hawaiian story. There is this weird 20s and 30s fixation on bloodlines, right? The idea of of blood mixing with other blood and and the races being uh, homogenized, I guess, rather or yeah, homogenized rather than staying heterogeneous. So it's it is uncomfortable. It's also, I think it's weird because his racism is at odds with sort of his personal feelings, I guess, of civilization on civilization. Like if, if he thinks that the black people are uncivilized, he himself views civilization as sort of unnatural and hates it. So I don't understand how he could, I don't understand how he reconciled those feelings. Like I don't feel that black people are uncivilized, but I don't see how he squared those things away in his head. You know I, what I mean? I, I, yeah. That's I don't a really think he can. Point. I think it's a very ro- um, romantic, not in the good sense of the word, but romantic in the sense of not being a realistic uh, uh, view of the world. Right. And that, that is very common yeah. to sort of, harken back to some sort of um, primordial, pristine past, right, is a very common theme uh, amongst people who are looking for some sort of purity. Um, and this, I think there was one story, I can't remember which of these stories, but, and again, it was very odd because even when you talk about Conan putting up, you know, white women at a pedestal, uh, Howard putting white women up on a pedestal, there was actually one of these stories where Conan specifically says, I'm a white man, and he never said that in any other story that I've read of his about him so far. And so that was a really weird intrusion to suddenly say like he was a white man. 
Uh, I don't remember that. Do you, do you remember, was that a Robert E. Howard story or was that one of the pastiches? That I, I should have underlined it, but you know me, I'm not like the, the book mutilator. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I know it was in here and it's like, wait, that's weird. You know, Conan's never said that before, you know, so I, I don't know if that was a, it doesn't seem like it would be an else Sprague to camp thing to put in, you know, um, but it was still something that sort of leaped out at me. Um, so I'll have to go back in there and, and say, uh, you know, at some oh. point. I want to say that was in Shadows in Zambula because he knocks on a door and he tries to get in and the guy won't let him in. And he says, can't you see that I'm white? Oh, I'm a white yeah, man that's alone. It. That's it. That's, okay, that's it. Okay. That's Interesting. It. Yeah, because yeah, in yeah. a lot of ways, it almost yeah. feels like Conan himself almost kind of transcends race in a lot of these stories. Um, I guess just in the sense that he's able to like move throughout all of these communities that in many of the stories, the communities are pretty insular and like he will suddenly – be the leader of a band of Kozaks and then he'll be the leader of a band of black pirates. Um, and he can kind of move freely throughout these worlds. Uh, I guess that doesn't mean he's actually, I should rephrase that. That does not mean he transcends race. It means he's like flexing his white privilege everywhere he goes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I, I, I'm, I, you know, uh, we've talked about this in some of the other episodes. I, I'm not, you know, wholly convinced one way or the other. And I, I do think that um, when the, people are allies of Conan, um, you know, they're still sort of um, made archetypal, but they are still given their due as being like, you know, noble warriors or skillful and this and that. It's when they're opposed, then they are sort of dehumanized. Um, so it's not an automatic, for example, that every black person is, uh, you know, in the Conan or a Robert e. Howard Irv is, is, you know, some kind of a bestial figure. Um, they're still not clearly not the equal of the protagonist of Conan. But they're not, you know, they may have their own skills and their own nobility and, you know, the various Middle Eastern type figures. Um, so I think with Conan, it's not so much obvious, but when it's with some of the more modern characters, it may seem like, oh, you have, you have these values from the West. And um, one of those is a leftover in the Flame Knife. Remember, he's sitting talking to um, the what would be the Afghani chef, uh, chieftain in the, um, the El Borak story. And he goes, oh, this philosophy uh, is so passive and I, you know, I can't get behind that. This fatalism, right. That works in the El Borak story because, El, you know, El Borak is a Westerner, but Conan is always fatalistic. He knows that, you know, Crom doesn't care. Right. So that's like completely inconsistent. So it was Elspreg de Camp not doing the amount of rewriting that he needed to do to turn the story into a proper Conan story. I like that. I like you. I like picking up on that because it definitely, even in the, the comics adaptation where they had that part, it struck me too as, uh, this is a. It's interesting for Conan to say that. Like the Afghani's are also fatalistic. They're not Afghani's in the story, but I guess that's what they're based on. And he always burns with life, right? He drinks wine because you know there may not be a tomorrow. But he everything is about death with him. Like he knows he's gonna die, so he's just gonna do whatever he can before then. Uh, he's gonna have a good time, right? Right. Right. But right. it did stick out to me as well. That's. A, I like that you brought that up. Yeah. Yeah, in general, I, I do feel like The Flame Knife was not a great adaptation of Conan. You know, <laughs> I, I've not read any of the El Borak stories, but Conan seemed very chatty in The Flame Knife in the way right. that Conan is not really ever chatty. Um, he's far more verbose in this story. And also, he just says things that I don't imagine Conan saying. Like on page 151, it says, Conan's eyes narrowed. I want a base for empire. We cannot stay in Iranistan nor yet return to Turan. In my hands, who knows what might be what might not be made of this impregnable place? Now get along. 
I, I can't I can't picture Conan saying something like that. That just doesn't seem like Conan right, at right. all. And there's like a very Saturday Night Live moment on page 197. I think the Magus is about to torture the Nanaya, who doesn't even appear in the El Borak story. So she's this maiden, Afghan maiden, who's escaped this the harem to go with him into the mountains. And the Magus of these, this basically tribe of assassins in the city goes, was it Conan? And he comes in and he goes, did you ask for me? It's very Saturday Night Live. <laughs> you <laughs> rang. <laughs> oh, <geez. laughs> so I, I, the one defense I will offer up for the flame knife is I like this inclusion and I guess addition of Olgerd Vladislav, right. who calls back to a witch is born. He pulls mm-hmm. Conan off the, the cross and he saves his life and there's like a right. cool gary gianni drawing in one of the El, the del rey books of them drinking wine together and their pals that i guess eventually the best way to put it is they they have a little bit of a falling out the squad breaks right. up and conan <laughs> kicks him out and takes over this guy's group of kozaks and kicks him out into the desert with a broken arm and if yeah. you read through the savage sword stuff there's a cool thread of olgard coming back and then this final battle that they have which is slightly anticlimactic, I would say, uh, if you compare it to other Conan final boss battles. It is much more Elborakian, just based on what we read in those stories, which mm-hmm. is where Elborak dispatches people with a swiftness, because that's what Elborak means. Uh, yeah. Conan, usually, right. you get a much more cinematic experience. But with Olgerd, yeah, with Olgerd, he just gory, kind of like, right? what's up? I'm going to stab you in the throat. And he does. <laughs> right. And, and, and there's a couple times where it's very rare that Conan has a duel of equals right i mean he, when he's fighting a monster it might be quite tough but in this story the flame life there's a couple times even with just a regular hurricanian warrior where it's almost a duel and so then it becomes that's much more appropriate for el borak right that he's a he's a, a leaner sort of not as bulky you know, <laughs> you know sword monster the way that conan is right and so, uh, <laughs> so and speaking of these like cinematic battles my absolute favorite moment from all four stories is when conan meets up with a, with the strangler from Yoda Pong. <laughs> that whole moment was so fantastic. Yeah. Um, when he like wraps his hand, like when, the, when him and the strangler both had their hands on each other's necks. <laughs> I, that was so amazing. Yeah. Baltor is cool. I remember that when we did the episode on shadows and Zambula that Luke and I had a long conversation about the, the thick knotted necks and the, yes. the strangling and the, the thick thighs flexing, right. trying to rip each other's throats out. Right. I like that Baltor is just, just initially just kind of like lounging there on yes. like, like this couch and he's just like casting the illusions of, Hey guy, you know, just casting illusions at him until he finally gets up and starts strangling. Him. So, <laughs> it is cool. He's like, yeah, he's got, it, he's got sleight of hand and then he's also just really strong of hand. He's, he's a cool guy. I want more Baltimore. <laughs> and I also like that Robert E. Howard wasn't afraid to make him like really just like vicious too. Cause it says, you know, he's, he's talking and he says, when I was a child, they gave me infants to throttle. When I was a boy, I strangled young girls as a youth, women, old men, and young boys. Not until I reached my full manhood was I given a strong man to slay on the altar of Yoda Pong. So like you first encounter this guy and you're like, oh God, he's like evil. Like this guy is like effed up. Uh, but then like once they do their thing and then Conan just like just like chokes him silly and his eyes are bulging out. I love Conan's response to that, which is, did you deem yourself strong because you were able to twist the heads off of civilized folk? Poor weaklings with muscles like rotten string? Hell, 
break the neck of a wild Sumerian bull before you call yourself strong. I did that before I was a full-grown man like this. And it just twists his head right off. <laughs> I see that almost like a Conan CSI Miami moment. He takes off the sunglasses. Yes. <laughs> wow! wow. <laughs> yeah, <exactly>. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, so that moment just had me just like smiling and giggling. Like <laughs> It was so great. I feel like the only story we haven't talked about is the devil in iron here. Uh, didn't really seem to stick with any of us, it seems. Um, yeah, not that. it seemed like there was a couple episodes before, like, um, what was that other one with the yeah. iron statues, uh, Devils in the Moonlight, right? It was almost yeah. very similar to that. So the only thing that really stuck with me was the sort of the, the backstory of the, the iron god itself, like the, the deity crawling up out of like, you know, this primordial plane up into our mortal plane, you know? Right. He comes down from cube land into flat land. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> Well, a thing that stuck out for me is how he basically rapes the woman at the very end of the story. Yeah. That's Octavia, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because he, he goes up to her and says, you belong to me now. Give me a kiss. And she's like, you dare ask. She began angrily. She fought him fiercely with all the supple strength of her magnificent youth. But he only laughed exuberantly, drunk with possession of this splendid creature writhing in his arms. He crushed her struggles easily until the arms that strained against them melted and twined convulsively around his massive neck. It's gross. It is gross. It's romance, man. That is not romance. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah, he's like, you belong nice. to me. And she's like, no, I don't. And then he just forces her. Yeah. Yeah. It gets even weirder when she sort of like comes around on it, like gets some Stockholm Syndrome almost. Uh, All right. All right. Yeah, that's because that's there's a male offer. Shook back her tawny locks, still tingling in every nerve from the fire of his kisses. I mean, Robert E. Howard could have wrote some Harlequin novels, I think. Uh, she did yeah, not loosen her arms sure. from his neck. Do you deem yourself an Aga's equal? She challenged. And then his romance is, I'll burn Quasarim for a torch to light my way, your way to my tent. Like, he's not even going to go to her. He's going to set a city on fire so she, she can find out where he's sleeping. <laughs> yeah, but I think this is like a great idea of what, a great example of what people talk about when they talk about rape culture. You know, because here's like this story where like your hero at the very end takes this woman against her will. She doesn't want it. She's fighting back. But then in the story, suddenly she loves it because like this shows how manly he is. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's, the, that's what teaches men that no means no until it means yes. Right. Exactly. That's, that's what comes up in people's head because they think if you're just manly enough and persuasive enough that, that you'll overcome their initial reservations. And you're right. It is gross. It's part of rape culture and, it's it's upsetting to see it in print, I think. But this is a great time to start chatting about gaming stuff. So let's go ahead and <laughs> change the, t- the change tone of the, the conversation a bit. One thing that I think is kind of interesting about reading the Conan stories in the Lancer Ace paperback fashion is really because I think it I think that the people who were sci-fi fantasy fans of the era really weren't distinguishing the difference between the Robert E. Howard and the L. Sprague de Camp, Lynn Carter Conan, because you really find just as much of the Lynn Carter, L. Sprague de Camp Conan stuff in early D&D as you find the Robert E. Howard stuff. That's true. Some of like the traps we had talked before about before, like the um, uh, drawbridge and one of the ones that fell down and crushed one of the, like a fake door and that kind of stuff like that. Sure. Um, and like the snow ape from the flame knife is right in the monster manual. Right, right. Um, and, and, and they're clearly going through labyrinths, right? He's going through a labyrinth in the devil and iron, right? And he's going through another labyrinth, although it's open air 
in uh, Flame Knife. So there's there's that element. Um, and I could I could almost see playing out the whole final battle in the Flame Knife as a, ch- a game chainmail or swords and spells if you were using one of those early you know um, uh, miniatures rules. Sure. But, yeah. Now, John, in general, in your experience reading these four stories, but we can also broaden it up to Conan in general. How do you feel that Conan inspired early D&D? I would say with these stories, it would be a little tougher for me to draw some of those lines between the two things. Uh, the snow ape and the monsters, the big snake, I think is very Dungeons and Dragons-y. Uh, sure. I think that that monster part of it is, is very much there. But I would look more at other Conan stories to say, oh, this definitely inspired some of that early D&D culture, like the God and the Bull where there's a big snake again, uh, but he's kind of wandering through a house. Uh, The rogues in the house where he fights the big ape in the, in the wizard's robe. I think that's a good one. Right. And the tower of the the elephant. elephant. Yeah. That would be the big one. Yeah. It's really those really, those like those ones that are early in the Elspreg de Camp chronology of Conan, when he's really just kind of like wandering around cities and he's just kind of a thief. Who's also just like crazy strong and can behead people easily. He's like <laughs> digging through ancient ruins. He's a yeah. fighter, right? I, that's the early version right. of that. In right D&D, before they had, right before they had, they didn't have a thief class in the very original. Uh, and actually, in the so, very original D and D, the class was called Fighting Man. And in Shadows and Zambula, the Conan is referred to as a Fighting Man. And I think that's the first time I've ever actually seen Fighting Man put in uh, <laughs> in, in any kind of context for me. Right, right. I think that was uh, between that and Burroughs in the, the Mars series, which we haven't gotten to. That's where, where that phrase most often comes up. So Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, at this point, it's not quite the domain game yet, but if you're playing D&D, you're starting to get to, get to uh, you know, expert level, right? You know, he's like ninth, 10th level, or, start, or he's name level, because he's got some followers now, right? <laughs> and so that's that's the, uh, at least as far as early D&D. Now, I haven't played any of the, the current version, like 5th edition. I don't know if they make that distinction anymore between sort of like the game changes in scope, not just in like power ability as you, as you level up. And I don't know if that's a, a reality in fifth edition, um, but it was very much built into the, to, you know, at least uh, advanced dungeons and dragons and onwards. And so this is him at, you know, ninth, 10th, 11th, 12th level, right. And that hasn't become a King yet, but he's got some followers, you know, he's got a band of Kozaks riding around with him. Now, John, I know that you haven't listened to the episode that we did with Luke because it's not available yet um, <laughs> at, at the time of this recording. Um, but one of the things that I mentioned in the episode with Luke is that I haven't listened to Bourbon and Barbarians because I okay. love I love the Chromecast, but I, I, I don't like actual play podcasts. <laughs> now that I'm like actually meeting you guys, maybe I'll start listening to it just because I, I actually kind of – yeah, because now it'll probably have a new dimension to it. Um, but – uh, Luke did tell me that you guys are using the kind of rule cyclopedia Beck me rule set for it. Uh-huh. And I'm curious with the experience that you've now had with kind of the Beck me rule set for Dungeons and Dragons, how well do you think that kind of a rule set would do at kind of doing a Conan style campaign? Do you feel like the rules support the kind of play that would be able to emulate this kind of fiction? I don't think based on what we've been doing that it would. Uh, okay. I think the rule cyclopedia and Luke will, will harangue me for this. I think, I think the rule cyclopedia <laughs> is a little bit impenetrable. Uh, it, uh-huh. It's hard. For, it's been hard for me to get a grasp on Dungeons and Dragons through it. Um, I've learned a lot just from Luke, like listening to him and listening to Josh and some of the, and Mike, one of the other players on the show. Um, 
So I don't think that it would be what I would pick. I've, I've heard about other versions of the rules that I think would be more adaptable to a Conan style of gameplay. Luke does let us pick a, a special class for each of our people. So one time I was a pit fighter because my guy was like a boxer on the side. So he was a little bit of a Conan-Steve Costigan mix. He didn't have the the swagger of Conan. He was kind of a... a if I remember correctly, he was afraid of monsters because his family was killed by vampires and he was a lumberjack before that. He was a fighter, that fighting man aspect, but I don't know. I don't think that it would. What do you think as, as two guys who seem to be pretty big experts on the rules and how to play through these kinds right, of things, right. would Conan fit into this? I think into the rule cyclopedia. Um, I haven't played that much rule cyclopedia, although I've looked at it and I kind of agree with you. And I think the intention from rule cyclopedia was never as actually a set that you would learn how to play the game from. It was for people who were already experienced playing the BX Beck me progression. And it was literally that it was a encyclopedia of all the available rules okay. there. Um, and I find that AD and D is also a game that's impossible to learn directly from the books. I think it's one of those ones that you have to have someone sort of like a, a Yoda figure to lead you through. <laughs> yes. Uh, um, but I think the basic expert, the Molde uh, sets, and maybe the Beckme uh, Fragmentor sets, which I didn't play, um, attempted to rectify that and give you a path and a pathway to that. But I think again, collectively, all those works and D and D in general, at least through the editions that I played, are more about the party than an iconic single hero the way that Conan is usually. Um, so to the extent that any of these games is more kind of D and D like of these stories that we've just read, maybe the flame knife is more so because he's got all these companions who are all good fighters and, and do this different thing. So it is almost a party there, which is not the case in shadows and Zambula or the other stories. Um, now, uh, DCC, which, uh, Jeff and I frequently talk about, I think is very well structured for the, their warrior class is, is brilliantly designed. I think it's very well structured to have a Conan type character, but, um, Certainly not in sort of more classical D&D. How about you, Jeff? I think if you wanted to do a really kind of authentically, an authentic feeling Conan campaign, Dungeons and Dragons, I don't think is a great fit. Uh, and really, I don't really think any level system game is, including DCC. But I think DCC is better suited, but I don't think a level system game really is. Because those, like, rule cyclopedia style D&D is very much like zero to demigod. And early Conan, even in the first of his stories, is already probably like uh, anywhere from fifth to eighth level fighter with thief abilities. Because he's been fighting all and these bulls, the- right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. But, but that's, that's how the character started at the first session. You know, at the, from the right. very first session, he was already just this like incredibly powerful, incredibly strong, very hard to kill person who's better than almost anybody he encounters except for monsters and demons. And he can even slay those single-handedly. He just, it just makes him sweat a lot. Uh, (laughs) So I, I think for Conan, you probably want to do something where your characters are a little, um, a little beefier um, that kind of have more custom, custom, a more customizable character creation process so I would say maybe something like uh, we, we bring up GURPS a lot too. Um, I am not familiar enough with Savage Worlds, but from what I have heard of Savage Worlds, I feel like that would probably be a really good fit for Conan. 
you know, I mean, I would be tempted to do it sort of like rune quests, but the thing with rune quests and GURPS, as you were talking about, even when they're at very, very high levels, they're still sort of human scale. And to a certain extent, Conan is, but he never gets killed. And so that really reflects like maybe if you were playing, I think white box actually would work very well. I mean, he would be like a sixth or seventh level fighter in white, white box, maybe, you know, uh, any of the early iterations of Dungeons and Dragons, like the primal editions of Dungeons and Dragons. Not, by the time you get to first edition, it's very much codified and, and, and then he doesn't fit in that, that mold as well. Um, so John, if you were going to use the D and D rule set to run something Conan style, would you allow clerics? I think he, yeah, he could have a horse. Yeah. <laughs> I think that he would get killed, but <laughs> yeah, he could have one. Because I feel like in uh, Black Tears, we have a great example of what I think a cleric actually is. And um, here it says Ages ago, a wily sorcerer of the land of Aklot, um, what did it say? conceived of a plot against the ancient dynasty that had ruled in this place since the fall of Atlantis with cunning words. He made the people think their monarch a weak and self-indulgent man was their foe and that the people rose and trampled the foolish King into the mire, setting himself up as a priest and a prophet of the unknown gods, a sorcerer (laughs) pretending to divine inspiration. (laughs) That's what a cleric is in my mind. It is a, it is a sorcerer with like demon fueled abilities who is tricking the masses into thinking that they have divine uh, mm. patronage. There's the other example of a priest, which is in um, Devil and Iron, which is the guy who forges the meteorite knife and puts the god down. And then he doesn't kill the god because he's afraid that his followers will, will rebel yeah. against him as well. And so he's kind of keeps them there in reserve. So, uh, He's never shown necessarily as having any <laughs> mystical powers. This is having a knowledge of how to, um, you know, put this God down, you know? That's a- yeah. Cause again, like priests in most of the appendix N are either sorcerers in disguise, right. uh, who are dealing with demons who aren't really gods <laughs> or they're just like corrupt <laughs> dudes. Um, I mean, I guess there's a few examples like in like the Solomon Kane stories where characters who might be closer to being a cleric, you oh, know, like yeah. witch doctor in um, the horror from the hills. and stuff like, yeah. Um, who um, Solomon came befriends and gives him the um, the talking stick, I guess what it is. That, that, yeah, his nice yeah, stick. Yeah, so. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I mean, as, as cleric, as D&D archetype, no, that's, that's um, we don't have much evidence of that from Howard's fiction, I don't think. I kind of am interested in what you guys are laying down here about. It would seem to me that if you were playing Dungeons & Dragons and somebody showed up and wanted to be Conan, that would not be a fun person to play Dungeons & Dragons with, would it? Because he would hate all magic. Um, he would kind of like hoard all the monsters to himself <laughs> and he would try to do everything on his own. So Conan wouldn't be very welcome in most parties. I don't think. No. And most parties don't end up well. I mean, maybe if you were just looking to do like a one-on-one adventure right. with a friend. Like- <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. I mean, I think the world is very compelling. So is it possible? I mean, this is the danger of any sort of um, licensed property is as compelling as that world is, like I don't really want to play any Star Wars role playing games because I feel like, even though this is, we're talking about a galaxy, it still feels very focused on a very narrow scope, a set of characters, and that all you're going to be doing is sort of uh, reiterating the tropes that have already presented in the fiction. And if you break that, then is it really Star Wars anymore? Right. right. Um, Conan, I think, is, and Robbie Howard is a little bit more flexible because it's that, that primal feeling in the world. But I would almost be more tempted to play in sort of like a Brand Mac Morn setting or a Solomon Kane setting, 
than a Conan setting per se. If Conan was wandering around just off screen, yeah, you know, <laughs> I would want to be Taurus of Namidia before he meets Conan. Yeah. Right? Yeah, right. be like a really <laughs> cool thief before he hangs out with Conan. Right. Taurus is a, a, a clearly a D and D thief yeah. too. Right. That he is, and the guy who was um. What was that one in the desert where the guy was kind of feeling in the traps, the dome? We read that one, Jeff. I can't remember. I'm trying to remember that. Oh, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, he's cool. Uh, yeah, but he like he like dies in the very first scene. Right, right. All the thieves die like you know in the first scene. <laughs> you know? It doesn't go well for them. No, no. But whatever their backstory is is potentially very interesting. So as you say, it would be interesting, and they're clearly not because there's that argument whether there should even be thieves in D and D, and I feel there is a need for thief because a thief is. Anyone can fight, but a thief is definitely a different archetype. Even though Conan has a thiefly skill, there, Taurus is a different kind of thief, right? He's definitely not a fighter, right? As is this other character who was in that story, which I'm blanking on at the moment. Um, so I think that's a different archetype, and there is a place for the thief class in a classical sword sorcery uh, role-playing game. Well, so with Fafford and Grey Mouser, is Fafford a fighting man and Mouser a thief, or...? I mean, uh, obviously in D&D, they multi-class them. Uh, DCC, I think, decided to treat Fafford as a fighting man with the thief skills and then uh, uh, Mouser as a thief, but with um, a deed dive. So basically uh, uh, some fighting skills. So, uh, And that's wow. kind of what I don't love about the class system is you have to kind of multi-class to make a lot of these kind of character concepts work. Right. And to me, that seems like that's against what the purpose of the class is supposed to be there for. Right, right. And I think DCC tried to do it pretty well with these dooms and benisons, kind of keep it limited scope because you couldn't just keep on piling them on. You can't have more than, you know, two benisons. Um, and yeah, D&D, yeah, it's a little tricky. And then everyone becomes basically, by doing that, ultimately it almost seems like nobody's happy with their niche. But then by ha- allowing multi-classing, everybody ends up coming with the same character anyway. People <laughs> sort of kind of converge to the middle. You know, everyone wants, I want to fight a magic suit thief, right? Because right? who wouldn't, <laughs> right? You know, Um uh, you know, I mean, the one that I think is really goofy is when someone tries to do like a cleric thief. It's like that just doesn't work for me. You know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I want to try being a bard but, someday. Uh, I, I read a lot of memes yeah. about bards. Are they? Yeah, I don't, there's never been like a good <laughs> bard class. Well, maybe I haven't played some of the later editions, but you know, certainly the bard class as presented in first edition just doesn't <laughs> seem to work. But it's an interesting idea. I mean, like, oh I think yeah, Silver John in the manly, uh, I should say, uh, John the uh, John the Balladeer in the manly Wade yes. Roman stories is clearly a bard. Um, I think there was a couple of other characters we've come across. Otherwise, Michael Curtis will come for you. He'll come through me through this screen and, <laughs> <laughs> and strangle me <laughs> as an infant. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I think that there is there is room for these archetypes. But then, at what point do you? Is this over proliferation? And at what point are we not being imaginative enough when we think about like what a fighting man can be? Right? Can a fighting sure. man doesn't have to be Conan? Aragorn's a fighting man. What other characters might be a fighting man? Right. Um, and likewise with what any of the other archetypes, whether it's a thief or a wizard or, you know, clearly the wizards in the John Valera's books are quite different than any of these evil sorcerers in the Conan books. Right. So. And one thing that's interesting to me about going back and reading, you know, going back to the appendix and, and then comparing that to what we think of as D and D today and reading the Conan stories, you know, we really don't have, humanoids that aren't human um but you play you think of your your typical dungeons and dragons game and you've got elves and dwarves and halflings and gnomes and kobolds and 
bugbears. Like it just, it goes on forever. All of the different kinds of talking, thinking, sentient, humanoid entities that exist in massive populations throughout the world. You can like walk on down to the swamp and find your lizard man city and then walk on into the woods and then find your bugbear town. Um, And I'm not really seeing that represented anywhere in the appendix end either. And kind of the nearest we get is Tolkien. But even with Tolkien, it's like we basically just, I mean, yeah, we have elves and dwarves and goblins and orcs. But for the most part, they're even pretty rare and their cities are kind of distant outposts. And they don't live in each other's cities unless there's something very strange going on with one specific member of uh, that particular race. Right, right. And I I guess I bring this up because I, I just kind of ask, like, what is your personal kind of D&D aesthetic when it comes to is it a human dominated world where most of your or most of your villains are human? Or do you prefer to have your your villains more literally monstrous? The- the playthrough that I've been doing with, with Luke, we—I mean, I feel like I've killed a ton of kobolds and bugbears, and in the last season there were vampires, or I guess he's like a vampire ghost at the end. <laughs> uh, so I feel like I've killed a lot of monsters. I have not killed a lot of people. If we had replaced every single kobold and vampire and all those things that you've killed with human characters in your adventure, would you have played differently? Yes, I, I feel yes. I would have, yeah. And is that compelling to you, or does that make it less compelling? I think it is compelling, in a way, because it's a lot like if you wanted to play an RPG video game, like my brother has been playing Red Dead Redemption 2, and I was watching him play it when I was home over Christmas, and he was just like, I kill that guy, and I kill that guy, and I shoot that person, and I was like, I could never do that. I could ne- I, Even though it's a made-up, fake <laughs> world, I can't bring myself to be that character or what was the, the star sure. Wars game, Sith, the Knights of the old Republic where you right. could be a Sith and get all craggly looking and stuff. Couldn't do it. I, I there was yeah. something in my Catholic upbringing. <laughs> that was just like, no, you can't even be fictionally bad. I would have played differently if they were people. I think I would have reacted differently. I mean, that's a big yeah. thing with like James Raggi in the Lamentations game, right? He wants to replace all the goblins, just make them be humans. And so make you really think about what you're trying to do. Right. Um, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I know people sometimes try to do that by including like the orc babies or something, but that almost feels like too cheap to me. I'd rather, I I feel like it's more impactful. if like replace all the orcs with people. Right. right. Um, what I've been doing recently, just the last few games, I've been playing a Saturday night game, uh, playing a Yun Suin game where humans are not the top dogs. They're not, they're not, uh, you know, they're sort of like the middle and the lower casts and there's these slug men, uh, who sort of rule the Slugman oligarchy, who rule the city. So it's almost like medieval Venice, but with awesome. slugs, you know, with Jabba the Hutt running the, the top. Uh, so this is a, a, an OSR property, but it's it's basically random generators. So every person's Yun Suin is completely different. Um, so the three characters that I've been playing with, these are, are people we've been playing with in the DCC meetup group, but we're running a, a side game, and they're all playing humans. Um and specifically humans from some version of the Byzantine Empire. So they're 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 mindset is not completely modern but they also are real you know and they're 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 reavers and freebooters but they also are constrained by the fact that they're in this city where they're outlanders they can't just go around and just cut people down in the middle of the street they're uh, running low on cash um looking for shelter um so i think that that um but some people don't want that right some people want that really heroic 
you know, out there, out front. But as you say, can you do that if you have to think too much about who you're cutting down and are, are these people um, pure sort of incarnations of an evil power? Are they, are they beasts? Are they intelligent beings with their own motives and their own territory to defend? Um, I don't think it's necessarily problematic, but it is worth thinking about, right? So, um, and yeah, yeah, I mean, I definitely wouldn't want to be playing a game where I'm just constantly running around. Um, I, I'm not really into the murder hobo games myself, right? I like people sort of exist. <laughs> murder hobo. I love right. it. <laughs> yeah. um, that's a, uh, an OSR term that's, you know, for basically people said that people said, you know, the party are not really heroes. They're just trying to, you know, gain gold and, and work their way up into, uh, you know, uh, positions of power. And I mean, it, it's maybe incentivized in certain versions of the game, um, but it doesn't have to be. So that's that's my take on it. Sure. I think any game where your characters get more powerful by collecting experience points, which you collect by killing things, obviously incentivizes for you to, incentivizes you to kill right. things. <laughs> right, right. And, and DCC, to a certain extent, does, although they call it encounters. So you could say, well, you evaded that encounter, and so you could award uh, you know, experience that way. Sure, but you get more experience when it was a challenge when when, when you've lost major resources right, from right. it, which usually only comes from combat. Right, right. And then uh, again with lamentations and and the the early versions of Dungeons and Dragons, you were getting um, money for the treasure that you recovered. I mean, experience for the treasure that you recovered. Um, and sometimes the best way to get the treasure was not to fight the monster. And specifically, getting lamentations, you get more money for the treasure than for the monsters. But then that creates the problem of how do you then incentivize them to continue to go adventuring when they have, you know, thousands and thousands of gold pieces that they're sitting on and instead of just staying home and becoming <laughs> investment bankers, right? So. <laughs> sure, definitely. Okay. So Now, John, I have a question for you. I know you've, you've only just started playing. You've, you've obviously never run D&D. If in some kind of future fantasy world where you're going to start running D&D on your own, is there something from one of these four stories that you think would be a fun thing to steal and put into and put, put into your game and kind of make your own? I like the idea of this hidden city that they discover in the flame knife with the assassin cult. And in three of the four, in three of the four stories, they find hidden. That's cities. true. That's very true. <laughs> uh, my, my particularly favorite bin was the win that was full of assassins. Uh, I like the idea of like these hashish smoking Lotus drinkers that are drugged and, and tricked into thinking they're in heaven by the magus and they think that they're fighting for their afterlife and all that i I like that aspect of it and i think it brings in what you were just talking about with i would send people after these humans that are assassins and thieves instead of cobalts because or bugbears or what owlbears because i think (laughs) it would be interesting maybe they have an owlbear they keep one instead of the snow monkey thing Exactly. See, well, can have an yeah. bear. And, and um, this has, you know, has faction play, which is a, a popular thing again in the sort of to be revived because there was a while where it was just villains and heroes, and now they're revived. So even within the city of assassins, there's these different ethnic groups, and they have loyalties to their their boss of the chieftains. And you know, again, Olger Vladislav is, um, you know, the Magus says, "Oh, we must consult with the Tiger, who is Olger, rather than just kill Conan outright or, right. or do something like that." So. Um, so there's some factions and it becomes like a three way or four way battle at the end until the ghouls come out of the caves, yeah. um, which the ghouls are, by the way, are quite um, like the Lovecraft ghouls, right? The kind of rubbery, they're hard to damage, you know? So I think that, yeah, there's, there's, that's a good, it's a good setting, right? That's a good setting. It's just that the, the melding of 
Conan with that El Borac right. story didn't quite come off, you know? Sure. So, well, guys, this has been really fun. We're nearing the end of our episode. So before we wrap up, let's go ahead and just kind of see if there's any any last thing that any one of us wanted to kind of discuss. My quick thing that I wanted to say is I really like how Howard wasn't afraid to give Conan some kind of obvious clues about things. And I think as a dungeon master, it's a good tip to like also don't be afraid to leave your character to, to give your players kind of obvious clues. Like when Conan first encounters the hall of petrification, you know, he sees that everything is like finely wrought marble, except these statues are kind of a weird porous white material, but they look like incredibly fine, finely sculpted, so realistic. Most smart players are going to figure out like, oh, there's something here that turns people to stone. Right. I mean, because players will oftentimes outthink themselves anyway. And they're like, ah, it couldn't be that obvious. It'll be something else. Sure. <laughs> and then I'll just walk in anyway. I feel like I do that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because where's the game otherwise, right? If you just go home. Right. Exactly. <laughs> you know? I'm going to go be an investment banker and open a maple syrup farm in Coldbrook. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> now, do either of you have kind of a last thought you'd like to share before we wrap up? Uh, I would just share that I hope that people – uh, aren't too turned off by these stories from Conan. If you've never gone through and read some of the other Howardian tomes, the Delray versions are easy to find at almost any used bookstore. And if you pick up the first one, the coming of Conan, the Sumerian, you're going to pick up a lot of really cool early sword and sorcery stories. You're going to get the Hyborian age essay that Howard wrote to explain the history of Conan, the barbarian and his world. And you get exposed to a lot of neat things that I think really have trickled down through the ages to our modern pop culture. And so if you ever wanted to know where the Conan movie got some of the stuff that it got or all these different things that you read in comics or play in video games, if you check that book out, uh, you will see that Howard gave birth to a lot of different things that are still alive today. And, and definitely to build on that, I think that just this particular book, The Conan the Wanderer, is a bad way to come into Conan just because of the way the story selection um, which highlights some of the the issues that we talked about earlier. Yeah. But that if you uh, read them in the Del Rey collections or, or, you know, some find some other reading list that points you in the right direction, I think you're going to find a lot of worth. His prose is impeccable. Um, you know, his, his creation of mood. And so you can, and I wouldn't blame anyone for saying, you know, it's not for me from what I've heard, but I think that you will, there's so much more that, you know, if you treat it, if you can, uh, you know, partition that part off and, and look at the stuff that's worth reading. There's still a lot to do. And, and it's not to say that you can't discuss these things. We, we obviously have, yeah. um, but it, it's, it doesn't negate the, the, the great value of all the other work, parts of the work. I, I think it has to be a part of any literary discussion with this. I think we do it a lot on the Chromecast where you have to wrestle with the fact that Howard was a Southern United States citizen in the early 20th century. So there's going to be a lot of hard things for a modern reader to read. Absolutely. But, right. You, you become a better reader, I think, if you grapple with those things and talk about them honestly and why they're bad right, rather right. than like hushing them up and, or trying to pretend that they're not there. All right. Well, um, our next two episodes, episode 43 is going to be Fritz Leiber's Swords Against Wizardry and episode 44 will be Jack Vance's Inferio. Uh, Hoy, how can people find us online? Uh, if you want to get in touch with us by email, we're at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com. Uh, we're on Twitter at, at, at appendix underscore N. If you uh, are 
like our podcast, you can find us on most of the podcatchers. Please rate us and review us. It does help other people find us. And hey, listen to the Cromcast. It's an amazing podcast. We're so we're so happy to have you on, John. It really is. We're both huge fans of your show. If people want to find the Cromcast or find you, what's the best way for them to seek all that out? Uh, the Cromcast is at thecromcast.blogspot.com. You can find us at the Cromcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And just like uh, Hoy was saying, we'd love to get a review. We'd love to see anybody pop in and say hi. We have a phone number. I can't remember what it is off the top of my head. Josh always does that part <laughs> on the show. I just know that it ends with Crom. So in t- just type a bunch of numbers in until it says Crom, and you'll reach us. <laughs> That's awesome. Call, call, call for, for Crom. Call for Crom. <laughs> well, John, this has been awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. And see you in the stacks. Read on. The library is closed.